Anyways, Revelation chapter 22. Let's open in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this day to study your word. We thank you for your this great opportunity that you granted to us. We thank you for the salvation that we have. And I pray that as we look at this chapter, you would encourage our hearts and minds. And I pray that we would look forward to this day when we're there in reality, seeing the beauty of the eternal state and just enjoying your presence forever in Christ's name. Amen. We finished last week, Revelation 21, talking about the New Jerusalem. And then in chapter 22, we have a, a little bit further description of it, the first five verses. Um, in really, in Revelation 21, you see the external view of the city. What is it like on the outside? He gives the dimensions and the measures and all that. But now he's going to look on the inside. What's it like inside the city? And he showed me a river, a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its way, or its water course, and on either side of this river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, his name shall be on their foreheads, there shall be no night there, they need no lamp nor light of sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. It's a tree, there's multiple copies of the tree, I mean there's multiple trees. Yeah, it's not like the tree itself is, but, okay. Well, it just had different each, the tree bears 12 kinds of fruit each month. Okay, so it's a multiple tree. Each tree bears 12 yeah, there's, there's trees there on either side, and the trees bear multiple fruit. Here's the river of the water of life proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Pure water, pure enjoyment, pleasure. It's, what we need to understand is that our, our existence in heaven is going to be so much different than what it is here now. It's not that we have to eat, it's not that we have to drink, it's not that we have to do any of this stuff, but it's there for our beauty, enjoyment, pleasure. And this river of life, water of life, gives us an idea that our life, our eternal life, is as, as its origin, God. God is life. It's not death, it's clear as crystal, there's no pollution. That's one of the nice things about heaven, there's no pollution. There's nothing to defile it. There's nothing, there's no ickiness up there. There's no dirt. And it comes from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And then it talks about as this water cascades down from the throne of God. And we're not told where the throne of God is necessarily in the New Jerusalem. But as this water cascades down in its water course, we are given a picture of a tree of life on either side. And this tree has 12 different kinds of fruit. Um, is it because we have to eat? If we don't eat, we die? No, we don't have to eat anything, but it's eating is for our pleasure, our enjoyment. And it says, the leaves are for the healing of the nation. You say, wait a minute, I thought there was no more death or sorrow or crying or disease. You know, if you get sick, you go down to the tree of life and have a leaf and you feel better. Um, that's not what it's talking about here. The healing, the word healing there is therapeuo. And it's not healing in the sense of, I'm sick and I need to be healed. It's therapeutic in the sense that it adds, I get it, it adds zest, joy. Um, it's the quality, it's like taking your vitamins. You know, you're not going to die if you don't eat a vitamin. By eating vitamins, it aids your health. It makes you feel better. It vitalizes you. It, it, it's for your well-being, I guess. I don't know how else to put it. It's not that we're going to be sick and need to be healed and, and you know, getting hurt or anything like that. It's just, it adds enjoyment. And the whole notion here of the tree and the fruit and all that is a picture of just adding enjoyment. I mean, it could be one fruit, right? But there's 12 different kinds, variety. God is a God of variety. And part of our internal enjoyment will be the variety of things that we have up there, including this tree. 
Is this the same tree that was in Eden? Some people wonder that. Um, I would probably say, no, this isn't the same tree in Eden. Um, but I don't know. Maybe it is. We're not told. But it's a tree which gives life. The idea that the tree which, it's not life in a sense of existence, it's life in a sense of quality. And that's what we're talking about here. And it says the curse will be gone. There's no curse. So there's no, there's no decay, disease. There's nothing of death. There's, no, there's nothing up there decaying. And the curse on the ground, what was that? Well, I just heard a message on the curse back in Genesis chapter 3. And, uh, you know, the earth gives you fruit, but you struggle for it. You know, you got to pull the weeds and kill bugs and all of this other stuff. Well, there's no curse up there. There's nothing that doesn't work exactly the way God designed it to work. Think about it. Did God design things to die originally? Did he design decay into the universe? Did he design death? No, those are all a result of the curse. He didn't design it in. What God originally designed was perfection. But because of sin, it marred the perfection. And why is there no more curse? Well, the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Again, we go back to the early part of Revelation 21, where all barriers, all of the barriers that exist at this time to God have been lifted. All the barriers. Um, the need for a heavenly tabernacle discussed is gone. The need for there to be cherubim to guard the holiness of God is gone. Um, God is with us face to face. It also said they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. This is, this is not, I see God on the throne, you know, way there. It's, it's, it's a face to face relationship with the creator. We don't understand. I mean, we don't, we don't comprehend what that's going to be like. Because sometimes, I'll be honest with you, you know, in this life you feel so distant from God. You know, you think sometimes, you know, God needs way somewhere, but, you know, the, the concept of God actually sitting across the table from you is something we can't relate to in this life because, you know, we've got the veil of flesh, we struggle with sin constantly. In our own lives, we struggle with it. But someday, all of that's going to be gone. Our struggle with sin is over. The, every blemish that we would have is gone. In fact, it will be impossible for us to sin. We won't be able to make a mistake. We won't be able to foul things up. And we'll have just face-to-face -face communion with God. Well, I quite not quite honestly, I really don't see how else you can take that. I mean, I would say it's literal unless you've got reason to believe it's not. And and what's the name refer to? I mean, what is that? In fact, this is this is this this is. Um, I think this is at least the third time in Revelation we've seen name on the forehead. What does the name on the forehead refer to? Ownership, right? Identification, ownership. Uh, you have those that take the mark of the beast on their forehead, giving ownership in a sense. They, they are part of the world system, part of Satan's system. And then here's these people with their mark, and also the 144,000 had the mark of God on their forehead. This mark signifies ownership, protection. We are his. But, but you know, we, I mean, it's really hard when, when you look at these five verses, it's really hard because what they're describing is so far beyond our ability to really put it into words and think. I mean, seeing God face to face, 
I mean, quite honestly, until Revelation 21 and 22, if, well, I mean, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day, but, but since Genesis 3, if there's anything the Bible tells you is that nobody sees God face to face. To do so is to be dead. To do so is instant death. But then someday, we'll see him face to face in all of the glory, all of the majesty. And not only that, but we will be as holy as he is because he makes us that way. That's the only way. Then verse 5, there shall be no night there. No darkness. Um, night, not only in terms of light going out, but I think night in terms of any shadow. And why is that? Well, there's no sun or moon. There's no rotation of the earth. There's no lights in the heavens. But God is the light. Lord God gives them light. The eternal light of God's glory will be there forever. Don't need any lamps, don't need any sun, don't need to burn anything to keep it light. And it says, and they shall reign forever and ever. Part of our eternal reward is we reign with God. Forever and ever. No end to that. No, no time when it won't be. And, you know, we look at that and think boring or, you know, what are we going to do for billions and billions of years? Well, look at what it says in verse 3. But the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. We'll serve God. You say, that's boring. Well, no, it's only boring in this life sometimes, right? But when you're doing what God's created to you do, it's not boring at all. In fact, it's probably the most fulfilling thing. We can't even relate to it. I mean, you know, we're trying to talk about this, but we can't relate to what it's going to be like. It's beyond our ability to even talk about it almost. We're, we're so used to this life. You know, we're so used to, you know, the, the idea of no night. I mean, we, we can't. <clears throat> Relate to that. No darkness. Seeing God face to face and not being able to sin. <laughs> never feeling bad. Never feeling tired. You know, never getting wore out. Yeah. That'd be great, you know. Yeah. And there are days I go to work and I'm just dragging the whole day, you know, and Not as, he wrestled with God, but God did not give him the Shekinah glory. Well, it saw, he saw God face to face, but not in his glory. The same thing that John says in 1 John chapter 1. He says, we saw and handled and touched the word of life. Yeah, they saw Jesus, but Jesus did not pull back the veil of the flesh to give him the blazing, because if he had, he saw a man he wrestled with that was God, and he saw God, oh yeah, he was face to face with him, but not in God's, what we call his effulgent glory, because had, he, had that been, he would have been a little cinder, you know, he'd have been a grease spot. What about Moses? Moses, the same way, remember God says you can't see me face to face and live, but he hid himself in the rock and he saw his hindermost parts, whatever that is. Um, but he did, Moses, in fact, Moses was, you guys, you know, he was in the um, Sinai 40 days, he came down, what happened to his face? It was glowing, but, but he did not see God, I mean, even, even the residual drippings of God's glory was enough to make fight Moses' face shine. And, uh, you know, we don't understand what it's like, the glory, the blazing, brilliant glory of God. But someday we'll see him face to face and enjoy his presence.
What's that? He said it was a short day. Well, I'll tell you, I... Part of your longs for that. You know, the eternal day. And you know, I long for that sometimes. And I think it's a... It's a you know, it's a reflection on our lives when we get so caught up in this life that we don't look forward to this. You know, who wants to go to work at mowing tomorrow if you can see God face to face? But someday it'll be worth it all. Someday we will be there in this new Jerusalem, this place where there's no night, where there's the eternal presence of God. And then we <clears throat> come to verse 6. He said to me, these words are faithful and true. Remember, we, we talked about that earlier on where it talks about God being faithful and true. In verse 5, 21, 5, he said, write for these words are true and faithful. These words are faithful and true. God's telling you how it's going to end, and this is the way it is going to work out, and it's being said by someone who not only knows what's going to happen, but has the omnipotent power to make it happen. So you got to understand, when God says something's going to happen, it's not me saying, well, you know, he looked down, he, he figured it out. No, he has the power to make it happen. It's going to be... It's something you can bank on. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels and so his servants the things which must shortly take place. Takus, fast. You say, well, it's been 2,000 years of shortly take place. Yeah, but you know, with God, with no time, you know, what's 2,000 years? After a billion years in heaven, you're not going to say, "Why, man, a billion years have passed. Boy, it's dragging on, isn't it? I mean, it's, you're not going to even think of time. The whole concept, there's no watchmakers in heaven. No clocks. No schedules. Time is meaningless. And God sent his, the angel to his holy prophets to tell him what's going to happen. And it's faithful and true. It is going to happen. And that's in contradiction to Satan, who is not faithful and not true. God's never lied. I mean, he has never lied. And the first thing we often do when something happens, we wonder if God didn't tell us everything. He's never lied. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Again, you know, the idea there is coming quickly. Wait a minute, it's been 2,000 years. Well, to God it's not been. It's been a flash in the pan. And one thing to note here, in verses 6 and 7, the undercurrent or undercurring theme is he's coming quickly, be ready. There's a lot of theological, prophetical charts that people put together. You know, you got as many of them as you got teachers of prophecy. And a lot of them say, well, you know, Christ can't come back until this happens, until that happens. Well, you know, the early church never saw it that way. As far as they were concerned, he could come back anytime. I don't see any hint here in verses 6 and 7. So, well, you know, I come quickly after, you know, this happens and that happens and that happens and that. No, I mean, as far as we are concerned, he can come back anytime. The, the, the whole notion, and we, we talked about this before, the imminency of Christ, the fact that it's at any time is something that you see throughout the New Testament. It's, and so many times you know, I get annoyed when I pick up these, these, you know, I listen to Marvin Rosenthal who says, well, you know, Christ couldn't come back at any time because this and this and this has to happen. And I say, well, you know, the early church really didn't see it that way, Marv. And if I read the Bible and the Revelation, it really doesn't talk about that. It just says, behold, I come quickly. Blessed are those 
who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, how do you keep the words of the prophecy of this book? How do you do that? Yeah, you don't change it, you proclaim it. It goes back to what Pastor said this morning. I've been around the church long enough to know there's a lot of people who talk about being a Christian who aren't. They use God talk, Bible talk, Jesus talk. They may even teach Sunday school classes, but they don't know God from Adam. They're not believers at all. They, they act like it. But when it comes down to living it in their lives, there, there's a void, a disconnect. And what James told us, as we found this morning, is that if you're a Christian, you need to act like it. I mean, you need, you need, there's, there's going to be some fruit there somewhere. It's going to evidence in the way you live. And I think that's sort of what it has here. If you really believe this book, I mean, if you really, really believe Revelation, how should it change the way you view things? Well, I'll tell you what, if you really believe Revelation, you're not going to freak out about Y2K. I mean, if you really, really believe it, you're not going to lose your cookies like a lot of these people do today when they're reading the headlines of the papers and thinking somehow God's lost control of things or now they've figured out when he's going to come back and all this other mumbo-jumbo. I think you believe it when you live your life in light of what it says. Jesus can come back at any time. I believe it. I preach it. I proclaim it. I tell others about it. And I live in light of that. And when things appear to be unraveling in this world, well, wait a minute, you know, I know how the story ends. Because I've read Revelation 21 and 22. And I know who wins in the end. And so what happens in this world? Well, you know, that's just part of God's unfolding plan. I don't need to get worked up over it. I don't need to lose sleep about it. I don't need to worry if God's going to lose the election this year. Why? Well, he's in charge of things. Why worry about that kind of stuff? And yet, we spend all of our time worrying about all of this junk down here. And you have to say, do you really believe the Bible? I mean, do you really believe it, or do you just say you believe it? I've been uh, reading that book by John Newcomb. He thinks, well, Jesus is coming up with all about prophecy. And it states in there that it really didn't start uh, accelerating here until about 1830 with all these differences. Mm -hmm. I mean, they had through the centuries all these different things where people controversies really began on this view or that yeah. view, you know, different interpretations. And then it just started. And when we got into the 20th century, it really just took off. I think part of it is just that the end is near. I mean, it is. I don't know how long it's going to be. We could, I mean, you know, be another 50 years, 100 years, 200 years. I don't know. I don't know when, it, and, and I think, I'll be honest with you, I think it's really bad to speculate as to when it's going to be. Because we just don't know. Don't waste your time picking up books where some guys unlocked the code to the Bible and figured it out. God's not told us that. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. You know, someone said this is the only book where you're blessed if you keep the words. Why? Because you know how everything's going to turn out. Now, if you didn't have the book of Revelation, how would you know, would you know how things were going to turn out? No. You wouldn't. I mean, you have a hint here and there, but I mean, you wouldn't know how it all turns out. We have the end of the story. And John puts his personal word on here. He's, I, John, saw and heard these things. When I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brother and the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. John is just so overwhelmed with what he, said, he saw and what he heard that he just falls down in worship. And the angel says, Don't worship me. Worship God. I'm just a fellow servant. No. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets. He says, 
I'm not one of the prophets, but I'm in the same line of the prophets because what were they? They were servants of God, right? Look what it says in verse 6. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants. It's just the angel is equating himself and the prophets and John. They're all just servants of God. That's all they are. They just serve God. They're servants. Yeah, the angels are more powerful than we are at this time, but see, they're just servants of God. And we are servants of God, and we're all servants, and if you're going to worship, worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is in hand. The idea of sealing the words of the prophecy means to hide. Um, in Daniel, Daniel is told that some of the words that he spoke in the book of Daniel will be sealed until the end time. The idea is people would not understand it until the end time. Now one thing I think you need to understand right here in verse 10 is that, and we talked about this early on and we started the book of Revelation, seems like forever. You can understand this book. You can. You don't need a PhD in biblical theology. You don't need to study Greek and Hebrew. You can understand this book. It's not that tough. It's only tough if you make it tough. And Bart's reading a book where there's a lot of people that make it tough. <laughs> but it's really not that tough. It's pretty easy. You know, he says, boy, you know, I'll never be as smart as Jack Van Impey. Well, Jack Van Impey, don't worry about Jack. Who says he knows what this book says? You can know it. There's a blessing on those who can read the book and understand it. You can know this book. Vance Havner talks about the, the new uh, graduate of the big theological seminary going through the backwoods, seeing a guy reading the Bible on the porch, and he went up and was talking to the guy and asked him what he read, and the guy said, I'm reading the book of Revelation. He says, well, you know, that's a tough book to understand. You know, you probably don't really understand that. That's, that's hard. You know, we, I took a whole class in theology in our seminary and theology on that. Boy, that's a confusing book. And he says, no, I understand exactly what it says. God wins. God wins in the end. I mean, it's not that tough. You know, we... And, and, you know, well, you're learning this ladies' Bible study. We make studying the Bible such a tough thing. It's really not that tough. Oh, yeah, it takes a little bit of effort. It takes a little bit of energy. But anybody can do it if you just apply yourself. You, you've got the Holy Spirit. You say, wow, you know, you know, I listen to Charles Stanley and MacArthur and Pastor Wallace. And they have so many deep insights. Well, you know what? You can have the same insights if you just apply yourself. We're too lazy to do it. We have somebody else do it for us. Do you have anybody else eat your dinner for you? I mean, that's about what, that's about what we do. Please, I don't want to eat this T-bone steak. Would you please eat it for me? You know, come on. We, we, we need to eat it ourselves. And he says, don't seal it up. The time is at hand. It's... And again, you see, the undercurrent of, of the whole chapter here is imminency. It's at hand. It's quickly. I come quickly. My reward is with me. Be ready. The, the whole, I mean, the whole undercurrent is imminency. So when anybody comes along and comes up some theological, prophetical chart that gets rid of imminency, they've not read Revelation 22. Have them just go back. Just read the chapter. Verse 11, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. What's that verse? Well, if this is spoken of in the eternal state, who is the unjust people? And who are the filthy people? Where are they at? lake of fire. Who's the righteous and holy? Where are they at? Heaven. 
This is a verse of eternal fixation. Your eternal destiny is irreversible once eternity begins. And for the ungodly, it's irreversible in that they will never leave the lake of fire. They will never get out. And for the godly, it is irreversible in that you can never foul up. We're secure. That's it. And, and you're eternally fixed in what you are. I think so. Yeah, I mean, you. Oh, yeah. I, I think. I think you know. When we think of hell, see, we're 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 people of the physical. You know, when we think of hell, we think of the physical torment, and it's going to be beyond anything we can comprehend. When we think of Christ dying on the cross, all we think about is the physical pain He went through. But beyond that, there's the the emotional, spiritual aspects of the torment in the lake of fire, and that that are beyond our ability to comprehend. What could have happened? What could have been? Think of Judas who walked with Christ for three and a half years and turned his back and walked the other way. Think about Agrippa, almost thou persuadest me to believe. Almost. Um, the torment of hell is going to be beyond the physical. It's going to be what could have been but is not. There will be regrets. There will be no rest day or night. And they'll have a fully informed conscience who will, conscience who will, that will accuse them forever of what they could have done. Um, Yeah, he said, you know, that was a really stupid thing to say. You know, um, those... Well, the, the thing is that someday, you know, everything will be vindicated. And, you know, sometimes I think, you know, how at times we allow ourselves to be embarrassed in the silence. You know, I don't want them to think I'm some Jesus nut freak, you know, because you see a bunch of them on TV and you don't want to be like them. Um, but, you know, the angels don't have that problem. They don't have a problem. You read the Bible. You know. There's coming a day when there's a, and, and you know, the thing is, if, I, if you read this verse right, those in hell wouldn't repent if they were given an opportunity. Yeah. 
I mean, I mean, probably the clearest, the clearest indication of that is look at um, the rich man and Lazarus in, in Luke. I think it's, I always get it 16 or 19, one of them. You know, he didn't want to repent. There's not a hint of repentance in his whole discussion there. Now, he was concerned about his brothers who were still alive, but for himself, there was no regret, no remorse in a sense that he would want to repent. And um, I think there's a real good explanation for that. And the explanation is this. The only way any human being can ever repent is that God has got to grant them the ability to repent. And if they don't get it from God, they're not going to repent. Um, you say, well, that, that sounds you know, pretty Calvinistic. Well, yeah, I don't know how else to read the Bible. How do you read it when in, in Acts it says that when, 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 um, when uh, Simon Magus and, and uh, Peter, conf Peter confronts Simon Magus and he says, uh, you need to pray that perhaps God would grant you repentance. You know, how else do you read it? That repentance is a gift of God. You know how it is that you're able to admit you're wrong? God's given you the ability to do that. Now, the average person in the world, they can't admit it at all. I mean, they might admit, well, I made a mistake. or I mean, to truly repent. Look at the Garden of Eden. When God shows up after they sin, what did Adam do? They did everything they could but just say, you know, I... It's me. Today we're told it's our mother's fault, our father's fault, society. We had a hostess Twinkie, and that's why we went on a murderous rampage. You know, it's always something stupid, you know. But no one ever stands up and say, I'm a fault. Why is that? Well, God gives you the ability to repent. And you repent. It's like you almost want to apologize to others as a sex like if you're out in a restaurant and you're almost afraid to say a prayer. You're all in the beginning, that's how I feel. Or you're afraid to go see the Bible. It's, it's really, it makes you really feel. I mean, why are you so afraid to stand up for that? <laughs> that's, it just seems to be a stigma. You know? Yeah, it's odd. I mean, you are what you are. I mean, that's what integrity is. You just, you're just you. that's the reason you're praying in public, you shouldn't be praying in public. It's an attitude of your heart. Is there a Bible verse that says, thou shalt pray before thy eat? No. no. There's nothing wrong with it, but I mean, you don't have to. There are times when I go out to eat that um, I pray. My boss is a Christian, so when we go out and we have lunch, we pray. But when we go out with everybody in our group, we don't pray. All right? I mean, we're still thankful for our food as any other time. We don't make a show of our faith, our religion. Um, we are what we are. You know, it all goes back to motive. We talked about that a long time ago. It's why do you do what you do? Do you do it because to be, you want to be seen, you want an image, or is it just that's the way you are? And that's what you want it to be, just the way you are. But there's a day of holy, eternal fixation. And then Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning, the end, the first, and the last. Here's another, just, if you're interesting, next time somebody tells you, well, Jesus can't come back at any time, go through Revelation 22 and count up the words, 
count the times he keeps saying, I come quickly, I'm coming quickly, I'm almost there, I'm coming quickly, be ready, I'm coming quickly. I mean, just every other verse he's saying, I'm coming quickly. And his reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. What does that, what's that mean? Well, our faithfulness to God is going to result in reward. And he's got his reward with him. And he is the eternal one who can do it. I'm the beginning, the end, the first, the last, the alpha, the omega. I am the holder of all of the cards in the deck. No one can usurp his authority. No one can prevent this from happening. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates of the city. Wait a minute, I thought I was saved by grace through faith. Absolutely, but what does that result in? Obedience. And from the human perspective that you're finding, and I hope you understand, if there's anything you learn in the book of James as pastor preaches through it, you can boil James down to one, probably just about one statement. If you're a Christian, it's going to show in the way you live. And that's all James is trying to get across. And if you're truly born again, it's going to be resulted in the fact that you obey his commandments. It doesn't mean that you never foul up, you never make a mistake, but it means the bent of your life is, as much as possible you want to obey. And those who do his commandments have the right to the tree of life and they can enter through the gates of the city. Who are those? Those are the holy ones. We have access to heaven. What's outside the city? Outside are the evil people. They're in the lake of fire. They don't get in the city. Why is that? Because it says back in Revelation 21, there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes abomination or a lie, but only those who are written names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Those are the people that get in, the redeemed get in, those that do not do not get in. They're outside the city. And then Christ is speaking. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Christ sent his angel to tell us what's going to happen. And he says, I'm the root and offspring of David. What is that referring to? Well, that's his messianic title. That refers to his kingship. That links us directly back to the Old Testament that talks about the Messiah from the root of David who's going to reign forever. And he's the bright and morning star, the brightest of all of the stars, the, the bright one of all of eternity. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Who are they saying, come to? Who are they addressing in verse 17? Is the Spirit and the Bride talking to us? Talking to Jesus, come. Now, we know who the Spirit is, who's the Bride? Redeemed. Come. Okay, you say you're coming. Okay, let's let's go. There's a anticipation there. It's interesting, if you talk to Christians in America, probably the last thing that's on their mind is Jesus Christ coming back. We're much more interested in our financial and physical well-being than we are in the fact that he would come back. Now you go to other countries, you don't have that problem. But here, it's go and ask the average Christian, um, would you mind if Jesus came tomorrow? Well, you know, I've got some things I have planned. We don't think about it. It's almost, in, in a sense, I mean, you don't have to be a Phi Beta Kappa to figure this, but go look at the books in the bookstore and look at things. And you see, in a, in a lot of cases, there's just a total lack of, anticipation on Christ's coming, unless it's shrouded in some fictional work that somebody's writing. 
But as far as him actually coming again and us really wanting him to come and get it over with. Now, why does the Spirit want him to come? Well, the Spirit strives with men to bring them to repentance. And so often men shun and quench the Holy Spirit. They despise the Holy Spirit. As believers, we know that the world can treat us pretty bad too. There's a part of us that says, come. Come. We know he's going to have, we know he's coming. That's a done deep thing. We know he's going to be here. We say, come and let him who hears say, come. Who's that? Well, that's us. If Jesus Christ came back right now, it would not mess up any of my plans. I hope it doesn't mess up any of yours. There's an anticipation in his coming. And then there's an invitation to the ones who are not believers. Let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Now, how do you partake of the water of life? Well, you come through repentance. Yeah, Jesus Christ came to redeem those who were elect. Yes, only the elect get to heaven, but we don't see the book of life, do we? We have no idea who God has chosen from eternity past. We don't know that. So what does the Bible have to say to them? Well, if you desire to come, come. Don't worry about whether your name's written down. Don't worry about, if you're thirsty, come. And those whose names are written will come. Come and drink of the water of life. That's exactly what this is talking about. There's coming a day when the invitation is withdrawn. And in any person's life, whether you whether you're a good Calvinist or not, whether you believe whatever you believe on, there comes a day when somebody hears the gospel for the last time. There comes a day when God's given them the last invitation. Now they may live another 50 years. You don't know that. But there's always that last invitation. If you're thirsty, come. Come and drink. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of the book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If you add to the words of this prophecy, now that in short is referring to what? The Bible or the book of Revelation? Book of Revelation, right? If you add to the words of this prophecy, well, what prophecy? Well, the book of Revelation. If you add to that, God's going to add to you plagues. In other words, you can't add more. And see, let me tell you something. When you start speculating on all this stuff, reading the newspapers and figuring out when this is going to happen, what are you doing in essence almost? You're trying to add to what God's told you. This is what he's told you. Don't add to it. Here it is. Don't go speculating on new things. Now, although it refers to the book of Revelation, if Revelation is part of the Bible and I add to Revelation, what am I also adding to? The rest of the Bible. So in essence, this verse is the closure on God's revelation to man. And notice here, and I guess it's fitting, since Revelation tells you how it's all going to end up in eternity, what else is there to say? There's no sequels. There's no Bible part two. You know, Revelation, the sequel. What's going to happen after the eternal state? 
I mean, this is it. What else is there to say? God's already told us everything else. It's all here. There's nothing to add. God's given us the final word. And so when you have people and cults and things that go around say, well, you know, well, yeah, but we got new stuff. No, you can't add to the words of the Bible. Well, we, we found a Bible book that was lost, and we didn't know it was part of the canon. Well, that tells you a lot about God's power to preserve his word, doesn't it? God says, shoot, you know, I lost that book somewhere. I wonder where it's laying around down there on the earth somewhere. We've got to find this thing. You know, come on. God didn't lose any word. He didn't hide it. It's talking to my Mormon friends, and they assert, you know, that the Book of Mormon is God's word. And I say, well, why did God hide it for so many years? Why, did it, why was it hidden? Well, you know, men weren't worthy of its message. And I say, well, God didn't hide this. Why would he hide that? Is it the angel of the Lord? <laughs> the angel well, it's, yeah. God, and I told him, I said, you know, God does not play games with us. If it's important for us to know, he's going to tell us. He's not going to hide it. Don't add, and, and not only that, but don't take away. Don't subtract. Don't cut out parts of the Bible. We don't like that piece. We'll cut that one out. The Jesus Seminar could take this in heart. I think it's wrong. The Bible, this is it. Now, what, now, let me tell you what this doesn't talk about. It doesn't, this is not referring to, how can I put it? This is not referring to misinterpretations of what he's given. That's not subtracting from the word of God, necessarily. Six chapter Romans is part of Romans. Well, see, one of the problems that we have is we like selective, and you know whether we cut it out with a with a with a pair of scissors or whether we just ignore it. It's the same thing, right? And there are people who just ignore sections of the Bible. Well, we don't want to talk about that. We'll just sort of. And like the words of Paul, he says, I have not failed to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. I didn't leave the parts out that I didn't like. Now, there comes a point when you leave out a very necessary part and you lead to eternal death. God's saying, don't take away, don't add to. Don't cut out parts of the Bible that you don't like. Don't say, well, we don't like this piece here. We're going to cut that piece out. I think then, does that mean that you know, the Catholic Bible with all those additional books in there, Maccabees and all? I mean, technically, I mean, there must, that's a whole other issue, probably how that developed mm -hmm. through the centuries, but I just wondered about it. You know, I don't have several in there. Yeah, they, they don't belong. They've never belonged in the first place. But, you know, understand that the, the primary focus of these verses are the book of Revelation. But by extension, I think they do refer to the rest of the Word of God. You don't want to subtract what God has said. You don't want to take it out. If God has said it, it's important to know. And who are we to say, well, we don't like this piece of what God said, so we just will ignore it and remove it. You don't do that. Yeah. And why is that? Well, the danger is that God will take away your part from the book of life. Now, some have tree of life in your translations, but it's best to understand that it's the book of life. There's Liber and Libra, one's tree, one's book. And 
what's the name of the book? If your name's not in the book of life, you're not a believer. And it's interesting, who takes, who, who's the one that's out, out cutting out all the pieces of the Bible? The unbelievers. We don't like that. We don't like what Jesus said there. We don't like what he said there. We'll cut that piece out. Now, true believers, you know, you know, this goes back where you've got to interpret this and be far beyond our ability to do it today. But, you know, if I'm a true born-again believer and I have trouble with a chapter in the Bible, does that mean I lose my salvation if I don't want to believe it? No, that's not what it's talking about here. Okay, what it's talking about is those who wholesale take out pieces of the Word of God who ignore it. God will take away their part out of the book of life, the holy city, and the things that are written in this book. You start taking out the book of Revelation and not wanting to believe it or not understand it, and that's endemic of the fact that you're not a Christian at all. You never were. Don't take away. Don't add to. Don't take away. Because the one who testified these things, verse 20, says, Surely I am coming quickly. Again, he says, I'm coming quickly. I come quickly. I come quickly. How can you read this and say, well, you know, he can't come until this and that and this. You know, come on. He, I, I come quickly. The church lived in expectation of an any moment rapture. And I, I read a book. I'm sorry. I read a book that thick by a guy who says, nah, they never believed that. Well, what, what Bible are you reading? I don't, where did you get that? I come quickly. And there's a sense of urgency here. And I think part of us, part of the message we need to take away from Revelation is that spiritual issues are urgent. You know, we say, well, you know, I, I know I'm not very strong as a Christian. Well, I'll work on that next year. How do you know you're going to be here next year? Do you know you're going to be here next year? Well, you know, yeah, I, I know I need to get on with my spiritual life, but, you know, ask someday I'll get around it. Well, will that day ever come? Maybe it will, maybe it won't. There's a sense of urgency. Don't fool around with the opportunity you have. The only opportunity you have is now. Don't waste that by saying, well, someday I'll... Someday may never come. Then the... Then the and uh, amen, even so come Lord Jesus. The expectation not only of Jesus saying, I'm going to come quickly, but then there's the response saying, come. How badly do you want Jesus to come back? How badly do you want him to come back? Or do you just don't think about it? If you're like me, I forget about it. But as you read Revelation, there should be a sense in which you want to say, what are you waiting for? Come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Come. We see in the end of the story, we win. Someday will be an eternal day. No night, no sin, no sorrow, no pain, no regrets. Just enjoying the presence of God. Let's look forward to that. Any comments or anything? Just wanted to say, uh, go back to 22, I think it's 13, where he says Alpha and Omega, first and last, and so forth. And all, I mean, that to me seems to really emphasize the sovereignty and it makes me think back to the end of Job. When he was, you know, said, well, where were you? You know, <laughs> he's created everything. How would we, you know, how could we possibly be able to? <laughs> See, the thing is, you know, God was not only there at the beginning, he's there at the end. So if you want to know how it is in the end, who's the only, who's the only source for that information? God. Who is faithful? And true. It's a done deal. It's done. Satan's not going to accidentally foul it up. It's as good as done. Well, let's close in.
prayer. Father, thank you for this time of study today, and thank you for this book we've been through these many weeks. Thank you that you've given us a glimpse into the end. Realizing, Father, that someday we will win. We will stand in glory, perfect and holy, without the ability to sin, without the ability to foul up, without the ability to make a mistake. And we will enjoy being there forever. We won't be bored. We won't be tired. We won't look to do other things, but we will just enjoy your presence. We just thank you for this promise. A promise none of us deserve, but you've given to us. We thank you for that. And I pray that we would live in light of what this book said, Father, that it would make a difference in the way we approach our everyday life, the way we work, the way we approach our relationships and the crises we face all the time. And we thank you for this opportunity in the next few weeks to just relax a little bit and rest up. And I pray as we come back in September, Lord willing, that we will be renewed and refreshed, that you would speak to us from the pages of your word again. In Christ's name, amen.